excited to teach tonight. So as we come to the book of Judges, the nation of Israel, they're there, that new generation's all on their own. Moses is long gone, Grandpa Moses, Father Joshua, the leaders, he's gone, Caleb's gone. It's their time, it's in the land, and we know it's a dark time, and it's a time of stewardship, it's a time of opportunity. The 12 tribes have received their inheritances, they've been defined which land is theirs, but they have to finish the job. They have to displace the Canaanites, they have to either drive them from the land or execute them. They really were under God's wrath. We covered that quite in detail on um, the man from Luz on the Saturday Night Topical. And of course, we had the man from Luz here last week as well that they found, he found mercy, but these people were very evil. And we'll get more into that tonight, the Canaanite people. So as we come to chapter three, chapters one and two kind of connected Joshua with Judges. And when that timeline about 1400 BC to about 1000 BC, when you get to the time of the kings, and it's just a time of lack of direction and fragmented and people are just doing whatever is right in their own eyes and there arose a generation that didn't know the word of the Lord. It's just a pretty, obviously a dark time for people who are under a covenant with God. They were in a covenant with God. So from Mount Sinai with the law and Moses on the east side of the Jordan River giving them the law and then Joshua taking them in and, and saying, as for me, my house, we're going to serve the Lord. They become this nation of fragmented tribes and people just kind of doing what they want to do. So we pick it up with that background in chapter 3, verse 1. We're moving into that segment of the book where we're moving toward the deliverance. So the, you have this degeneration, and now we get to all these judges of what we call the deliverance, the cycle of a good judge, a need for an oppressor, crying out to God, God giving them a judge, a deliverer, and then the people having rest and then repeating the cycle. It's cyclical in what's going on. It starts tonight in chapter 3, verse 1. We read these. We read this. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generation of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon, to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he, that it would be the Lord, might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to be their sons, and they served their gods. So here is the beginning of all their problems and the explanation of all their problems. Really, these first six verses of chapter 3 set the whole theme for the rest of the book as we study these different judges, what they were up against culturally and what was going on. God's people had become unequally yoked. They had done the very thing God had warned them not to do through both Moses and Joshua. They had compromised their light for darkness. They had capitulated the truth for falsehood. And instead of fighting the good fight, they have surrendered to a passive, non-confrontational, compromised lifestyle with no salt, no light, no conviction, no character, no backbone, no promises, no power, an impotent life spiritually and in general. That's what they became. And that certainly can happen for churches. And this was their covenant. We read there in verse 1 and then again in verse 4. 
that the Lord left these adversaries in the land to test them. So the first bit of application we get to tonight is God left these adjutants, these circumstances, these people, these evil people in the land to test them. We say fairly often that it's, it's a test. It's always a test. When we get to Gideon, we'll see that his mighty men would drink water, and that was a test, how they drank the water. We're always being tested. Not so much because God doesn't know what's in us, but that we can know what's in us, and we can rise to the occasion and pass those tests. For certainly we fail tests, and I've said this many times, when we have a failed test, we usually get a rematch because the way forward with the Lord is to experience victory over we previously had experienced defeat. So we're going we're gonna to get tested. You know, when, when someone gives their life to Christ, you have to be careful how we present the gospel and frame the gospel. As Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, you know, what you catch them with, you got to keep them with. So if catch them with bells and whistles and freak shows, then you got to keep bringing the bells and whistles and freak shows and get freakier as you go. But if you catch people with the word of God and the gospel, if you catch them with repentance from sin, faith in Christ, enter by the narrow gate, if you catch them with the gospel and the truth, that through many tribulations we must inherit the kingdom of God, that we have afflictions, that Jesus said, you will be hated by the world for my name's sake. If you catch them with the truth and present the whole truth, then people can understand what they're committing their lives to. Yes, we have the good news that we're passing from death to life in Christ. Yes, God laid upon his son the iniquity of us all. And now we have positional righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, having been born again. And that is good news. In fact, that's why the gospel is called good news. It's very good news. We pass from death to life. We can be sure that we're going to heaven, which matters a lot when you're on the cusp of eternity. When people are living for time, it doesn't matter as much. But when you're living for eternity, you understand the value of that. So we have all these wonderful promises in Jesus that are yes and amen that we like, like his thoughts for us are a good thought, that God loves us, like the song we were singing earlier, Oh, How He Loves Us, and then we're singing, Oh, How We Love You. People love to hear that. But the reality is we're not Canaanites and we're not Amorites. And we're not of this world. We're never going to be of this world. This world's never going to be our home. And we're never going to fit in. And the world's never going to accept us. When the church compromises to be like the world and capitulates truth to be like the world, the world laughs at us. They laugh laugh at us to scorn. We look ridiculous. In fact, the devil loves it when the people of covenant, the Church of Jesus Christ in 2021, Surrender biblical truths and biblical mandates to human governments. The the devil just loves that. And so do godless men and women. When you go back to a year ago when all the forced closures and all this stuff, and you can, you you know, you can go, of course, we all know it's madness out there and insanity, but you can go to Walmart's open, the box stores are open, the abortion clinics are open, the casinos are open, the liquor stores are open, and these people that hate God, they're They're trying to keep churches closed. Remember, essential, 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 non-essential? 
So strip clubs and abortion clinics are essential, but the church isn't essential. So when church leaders try and play that game, like, no, really, we're essential. Remember what we did here? We never tried to prove to anyone we're essential. I don't need to tell you Jesus Christ is essential. <laughs> you need Pastor Joey. You do not need Pastor Joey to tell you that Jesus Christ is essential. The Lord of the universe that we all bow down to for all eternity doesn't need me or any church leaders trying to play some word game with Caesar that the church is essential. The church is the church. It's the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus bought the church with his blood. We sing songs of eternity. I'm not comparing the church's validity in human affairs to an abortion clinic, a strip club, or a casino. That's just playing their game. That's what the devil loves. The devil loves that. The devil loves to get us off our game. All authority has been given to us in heaven on earth to be the church. Do not forsake the assembling of the brethren as a matter of some, but stir up love and good works. I mean, he wants to take us from everything that God clearly calls us to do, not mandates, but the great commission. And he wants to take us from that to play some game in a field of random choices and Simon says this and Simon says that to make the church subservient to Caesar. And wow, that's ridiculous. That's craziness. But you know, a lot of churches did that. And that was their choice. I'll give an account for what I've done. They'll give an account for what they've done. But I don't need Simon Says to tell me where we stand in the universe as the church of Jesus Christ. And nor do you. So he allows thorns. He allows things in the side. He, he allows things to test us. He'll, he'll show us what we're really living for, what really matters. You know, the whole singing thing, that was awesome. It really was. <laughs> Leave it to the state of California outlaw singing in a church. Honestly, the devil hates praise and worship. But you know what was really good about that experience a year ago? is we didn't stop singing. And we tried to do these other things. Recently, someone just asked me, what do you think Pastor Chuck would have done? Because everyone wants to know what Pastor Chuck would I don't know what Pastor Chuck would have done. He's in heaven praising God without a mascot is what he's doing, you know? So whatever he would have done is, you know, it doesn't matter because we're here. It's not his battle. It's our battle. Joshua's gone. Moses is gone. We got to figure out what we're going to do. But I just, God allows things to test us. And you know, the singing thing, as you know, if you were here, that just, we're worship generation. Don't you come to the house of the Lord and tell us we can't sing to Jesus. And don't, don't, no, don't come here. You can do whatever else. I mean, you, whatever. But don't, no, we're not playing that game. We never play that game. We did the inside-outside game. We did wear the mask game briefly, if you choose to. We did this and that and everything else. Some of it just seems so silly now it's, it, compared to where things are at now. But if you recall this, this singing, I was willing to die on that hill and I still am. Nobody in time, space, and matter tells the church of Jesus Christ, you cannot sing to Jesus Christ. Because we sing to the Lord in the Old Testament, we sing to the Lord in the New Testament, and we sing to the Lord in heaven. It transcends dimensions. So under the great commission of all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth, Jesus said, that's something we would just never surrender. And it seems so silly to me personally when I watch churches try and play that game. Again, they'll 
that that's how they feel about it. It's not my kuleana. As they say in Hawaii, it's not my village or my field. That's their mango field. There's our mango field. That's your kuleana. This our kuleana, but yeah, that he might test Israel. God allows governments that say you can't sing in church to test you how much you want to sing. And with the thought of having to go to of being fined for singing or going to jail for singing, didn't it make you want to show up on time for church and start singing from the very first chord? It's kind of like no one tells me I can't sing. Like, you, you, like you're like, oh, I can sing if I want to sing. I don't feel like singing. It's third song. I don't feel like singing. I know what it's like. That's me half the time. But as soon as Caesar takes away singing, I'm like, no one tells me I can't sing. I'm here. I'm not messing around back here five minutes after service. I'm out here, and I'm singing. I'm singing. I'm singing, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about. No one tells me I can't sing. It made me want to sing. And let's be honest. Do you value singing out loud to the Lord more since that mandate a year ago? I do. I can honestly say I do. Because whenever I'm distracted during worship and I'm thinking like, okay, what's that fourth point? Gosh, I'm, not, I'm just not sure about that application. I was like, would you just sing? Like you were willing to go to jail for singing a year ago. Just sing. Sam knows and Ryland and all the pastors and deacons know we've always been super protective of protecting the environment of praising Jesus. It's just too special. In Vermont, that one time, that guy that was coming out, it was so odd. This guy was just wrong. He, was just, he actually was very evil, to be honest. But that one time during service, there's like 12 people in a small meeting room at this church, or the, uh, uh, the, not the Sheraton, Econo Lodge, and we're worshiping the Lord with a cappella. And it's so all we can do is just pull it all together and just be faithful and keep doing everything. And this guy starts blurting out all this stuff during worship. And Pam O'Connor was singing. I was like, stop. Hey, you. Don't do that. Because some distractions just let, distract me and Sam and maybe a few people in the back. Some distractions... You can't hide from the congregation. You have to stop the service, right? I'm like, dude, do not do that. I've, I've done my best to put up with you. But we're worshiping Jesus, and you're distracting that. So either worship Jesus with us or leave. But do not interrupt Jesus. He's the permanent one in this place. So knock it off. He stayed. I got up. He sat, and I was just like, you know, like, He stayed. We, he's the one that brought the Book of Mormon and tried to convert people to Mormonism later on. We actually carried him out. Me and Jim O'Connor had to carry him out one night. Literally, had to carry him out. He's, you don't even know my Vermont stories. That's just a, but they'll test you. Everything's a test. How strong are your convictions for the kingdom of God, the Great Commission, the Word of God, and the place of the church of Jesus Christ in your life, the body of Christ in your life, and the call of God in your life. How in is all in for us? So all that we've been through has been a test for the church in a lot of ways. And I'm the better for it, and I hope you are too. Because when everything gets shaken, the things that are solid remain. You know, we all want to get saved and not have temptations with all the things that used to tempt us. And I have found in the human experience that 
the Lord will often deliver us of about 80% of the main things that have a foothold in our life when we give our life to Christ. But he'll leave about 20% around. The 20% you're most vulnerable to, just to test you. And I might, that, that could be it from here to eternity. It's amazing how something can have such a stronghold in your life, like smoking weed or being an alcoholic or whatever, and God might just totally deliver you from it. But there's something else the devil is using against you. And God allows that. And for someone else, what, for example, gambling. I've never related to gambling. Now, we had a conversation with, about someone who's gambled away hundreds of thousands of dollars and just keeps the family in financial trouble all the time. And I was like, I just cannot relate to gambling. When Michael Jordan had all his gambling problems and these guys, I just, I just don't relate to it at all. There's nothing appealing to me about doing this, but I've been to Vegas where people are, you know, like doing this at a 7-Eleven. Like, there's nothing that appeals to me. So there's no, it's not a Canaanite in the land where I'm living. But there's other Canaanites in the land where I'm living. So you see, the devil has all these things he used to trip us up. But no temptation has overtaken us, but such is common in man. And God, who is faithful, will provide a way of escape that we may endure and escape it. But the thing that might be very tempting to me may not be tempting to you at all. And the thing that's tempting to you is not tempting to me at all. God allows things to stick around to test us. So really, even after we give our life to Christ, we have full victory in Christ. But are we going to apply the promises that if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. And our entire journey from here to eternity is learning to truly trust in Jesus for forgiveness, for cleansing, restoration, and victory in the future. And so there's going to always be some Amorites, Hivites, Perizzites, and Canaanites around in our life that present the choice that is a choice of the ages in time, space, and matter. The tree of life to obey God, trust his word, and submit to him, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to rebel. And it's a flashpoint to see, not because God doesn't know, because he knows, but for us to see. Because everyone thinks they stand, take heed, lest they fall. So the, the real issue of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which has a tempting, alluring power, there's something that has a fascination with evil, is to trust God and gravitate and move toward the tree of life. So really, the same choices that Adam and Eve, the head of our race, had to make to choose God and obey him, to know his love and reciprocate his love, is the tree of life. Or to rebel against that love and know the defilement of sin and rebellion. So in our land, in our lives personally, in the church globally, in our church locally, there are going to be things that God allows to test us. Things are going to test our marriage if we're married. Things are going to test our singleness. He left them there to test them. And sometimes, like, there are people that are a major problem in your life, a major affliction in your life. I, I, you know, you go to family court, and you just see how gnarly and ugly things can be. And there's relatives, there's... there's parents that may never support and love your spouse. I mean, there's all kinds of things in your life that are like Amorites and Canaanites and Perizzites where you just can't shake it. They live there. And you have to decide how you're going to live with them in that same neighborhood. Are you going to marry their daughters? Are your sons going to marry their daughters? Are you going to give their daughters to marry them? Or are you an Israelite and you're the tribe of Benjamin and you're true to the God of the tribe of Benjamin? That's really what it comes down to. 
Because there, I've seen with divorces and child custody and, and visitations, you know, I like to close tabs. I like to check the box, put the line through it, and just, I get a list every week of what I'm doing, and in the week I kind of, like, it all ends up in the tra- my little office trash, and maybe two or three things get carried over to the new week. Maybe you're like that. I like this. This means I'm working on it. This means it's done. And you know, in life, we like to take Amorites and Canaanites and Hivites and Jebusites and go, this person, my boss, this superior, we like to do this and do that. And Lord's like, no, it doesn't work like that. You can't just check the box and put a line through that. You and that person are sharing this neighborhood for the next 40 years to eternity. You and that person, that's the one parent, you're the other parent. And you may not be married, but you're both parents of these kids, and you're sharing this journey come hell or high water for the next 40 years. And how are you going to handle that? How are you going to manage that? Are you going to surrender that to the Lord? Are you going to walk in the grace of Jesus Christ? Are you going to carry yourself in maturity? Because only the Lord can really show us how to handle an Amorite and a Hivite and a Perizzite in our own life. But one thing for sure is not to become equally yoked with them, unequally yoked with them in their sins, their worldview, their darkness, and what they condone. Because that was their downfall. Family, Amorites, Perizzites, employees, the workplace, governments, they can so leverage you to make your life so miserable if you don't play their game that it's just easier to say, go ahead, have my daughter. And let us, our daughter, have your son. It's so much easier to do that. Compromise is so much easier than conviction and character in our personal life, in our marriages, in our homes, in our community, and certainly with governments at different times and seasons in the human experience. But we never want to compromise the truth and the application of the word of God for our life. Because as it says in Romans, let God be true and every man a liar. And God doesn't have a shadow of turning, the father of lights. So it's true and right. On Tuesday, October 12, 2021, is going to be true and right on Tuesday, October, on October 12, 2121, if the Lord tarries, as it was in 1821. It's true. It doesn't change for the church, every language. It doesn't change. So the key is to recognize it's all a test and to pass the test. And when you fail a test, you're going you're to get that test again. You may not get it exactly the way it was, but it's, it's, it's in, in content and principle, it's the same test. You're going to have to just, because God's working on us for eternity. He's trying to take us to higher levels. Forgetting what lies behind, we press on what lies ahead to the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. So we want to get it right. And having done three memorials in the last four months of men close to my age, I realized not only do I want to get it right, I better get it right. I better get it right. And I just saw on Instagram yesterday a good friend of mine that I work with at Surfride down there in Oceanside, the surf shop, guy at least 10 years younger than me, he had a massive heart attack out of nowhere. And, you know, that's that window for guys... I'm sure you guys know that. Somehow he's, the right paramedics were there, the right people were right there. They saved his life and, you know, they did this and did that and the things they do. It's like, wow. It's like the man from Luz, right? He got a second chance. We want to get it right. We can't eliminate 
these things from our life. God allows certain extremely difficult, agitating things in our life to test us as individuals, to test our marriages, to test our home, to test our church, to test, to, to test the church worldwide. And compromise is always easiest for the short term, but character, conviction, and obedience is always wisest and the only thing that matters for the long term. We have to have long-term investment strategies when it comes to obeying the Lord and his word. To the blessing of ourselves and all that we love and hold dear and to those that come after us, the ones that are behind us that we love and care about. It's so easy to just say it's too hard. You get tired of fighting all the time against the kingdom of darkness. It's a test. Don't give up. Hold the line past the test. It's too easy to just capitulate and serve other gods. Don't do it. Now we get to verse 7, Othniel. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan. Rathemim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rathemim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, or Caleb's son-in-law as well. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war. The Lord delivered Cushan Rathemim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rithium, so the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So there's even a time, right? You lose Moses, then you lose Joshua and Caleb, and now, eventually, you even lose Othniel, the son-in-law of Caleb. It's always generations in motion, right? 80 years moving together, 80 years moving together. I'm at Graveside Cemetery yesterday, and I'm looking at all the, all the cemetery markers 1921 born, 1935 born, 1950, 1970. They lived, oh, she was four years old. What happened? He was 19. She was 27. He was 91. She was 92. Just looking at all the stuff. Generations in motion. Ding, 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 ding. 80 years, 20, 40, 60, 80. And we're all just moving right along. And Othniel was still a link to the greatness of Moses and Joshua because Caleb was the other one of the two with Joshua and he married Caleb's daughter. Othniel is the first of the great judges and he was awesome. We've already seen Othniel. We saw him last week when he told his wife, his newlywed wife, to ask her dad for the upper springs and lower springs. The two of them together, like, let's get all of it. And we saw what you asked, you know, you seek, knock, ask, and get after all of it. And that was a wonderful story. Everything we've read about Othniel in the Bible is really good. You catch that? Because he's popped up a few times. Every time this guy is mentioned, it's good stuff. And I said this before, like attracts like. And Othniel's daughter's like, his wife, Othniel's wife is Caleb's daughter. So you grew up and your dad's Caleb. That's like big time. And she married high. It was, as they say, you didn't marry up or down. Like people like to say that. 
We won't make that judgment call, up or down. That's for you to decide. But this is the right here to be equally yoked is right across. Othniel married Caleb's daughter. And this great leader, his daughter was a princess to him. And she married Othniel, and he becomes the first judge of Israel. A prelude to kings, really. And he's the first deliverer. And when he brought deliverance, he gave him 40 years. Now, that would have been a good time to be alive. Like, what if you're like eight? Let's just say you're a teenager. You're 16, and your life's been miserable since you're eight years old because this Mesopotamian king is picking on your people, laying heavy tribute, hyperinflation, taxing without representation, all that kind of stuff, doing all those things that kings do. And your life is miserable, and you have no future, and you're going to Shabbat High in the tribe of Benjamin. And you got no future because of this cat. And then all of a sudden, Othniel just says, enough is enough. And this guy rises up, and his Instagram account's blowing up. And he's coming after this guy. He says, you tell that clown in Mesopotamia we're coming for him. And we're not afraid of these people. And he becomes this leader. And he's going to lead these people. He's going to bring them deliverance. He's going to drive this darkness, this evil, out of the land. He's going to beat it down and beat them back and put them in their place for 40 years. So if you were 16 when it happened, you got all the way to 56 before you had problems. Sound familiar? Got all the way to 56 before you had problems. This man's leadership was deliverance for the entire nation... An example for everybody that if you are all in, you bring blessings to all people. And not to live in fear and not to be afraid of bad guys who flex from Mesopotamia. But to trust in the Lord, stand up to evil, make yourself available, and get after it. Because you didn't marry Caleb's daughter to be a coward. That's how it works. But there's a bit more to this. Because the key, key thing with Othniel is it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And that's the key. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's everything. That's what I ask for every time I teach. That's what Jeff's asking for when he leads in worship. When you're teaching the children's ministry, that's what you want. When you're trying to hold six kids together that are like under six, you're like, Lord, anoint me. <laughs> Give me a, a double portion. Give me favor with these kids, right? Like when you're holding it in the IT room with a, a six-month-old, Lord, give me favor in their sight. I'm looking at my grandson, Bon Bon, the other day. I'm like, I'm like, and like give me favor because there's all this going on, and he's kind of on my shift right now. It's like, it's me, Papa Joe. Like, Give me favor. Let your spirit be upon me. See, as we know what it says in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, God said so many years after this time, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And yes, we want to have the character and conviction. Yes, we want to have the courage. But in the end, we have to have the Holy Spirit upon our life. Now, when we're born again, we're born of the spirit, and we're given the mind of Christ. We're given the fruit. The fruit of the spirit is produced from our life, like Galatians 5. So if you're truly just abiding in Christ, reading, reading God's word and praying and letting the spirit of God work in your life, you're going to be a spiritual woman, spirit-filled man. You're going to have the mind of Christ. You're going to have the mind of the spirit. You're going to be less inclined to 
produce the wrath of man, which produces not the righteousness of God. You're going to tend to have a soft answer, but you're going to tend to have conviction and character and speak up when things need to be said. But there in the book of Acts, we're told that the Holy Spirit came upon them. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, tell you in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we know in the New Testament, in the Greek words, there's the Spirit is with you. That's the para. So the Holy Spirit convicted in the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So all those people at Harvest Crusade two weeks ago like, wow, they aren't saved. And the Holy Spirit's like, he's with them. He's speaking to them and piercing their heart. And go forward, go forward, respond. That's with. He's, he's guiding them. But once they receive Christ, then he's now in them, E-N in the Greek. He's with and then in. And we know for sure the Bible uses another terminology. Jesus used it. John used it. And the, the book of Acts is all the place that the Spirit comes upon you. That's called the epi. It's something more. Now, what that more is is debated from since the first century to right now between different denominations. But like I always say when it comes to the Holy Spirit, you can be Spirit-filled, you can have the mind of the Spirit, you have the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can call these things what you want to call them. Just make sure you got it. Just make sure you got all of it. They filled the water pots to the brim for Jesus, and he turned it to wine. So I want to fill my water pots to brim with the Holy Spirit and then really be overflowing. Get all of it. The world loves a spirit-filled woman. The world loves a spirit-filled man in a good sense. Now, they might not like your message, but you're the person that will show up for work and do the job. You're the person that will serve others unconditionally. You're the person that will bring Christ into that conversation. The spirit-filled woman and the spirit-filled man, they bring Jesus to that equation. Think about this. What it says is Jesus, that a bruised reed he wouldn't break and a smoking flax he wouldn't quench, nor would you hear him crying out in the street. A spirit-filled woman, a spirit-filled man is not someone that are raising a rancor or perspiration They're spirit-filled Christ in the situation. And they have those gifts going, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the soft answer that turns away wrath. They just, they have it. So the spirit came upon Othniel. He has this great physical genealogy of what he married into and who he is and like attracting like. And he is the first great judge. And he did bring about victory 40 years. His life, a spirit, with the spirit coming upon his life, he brought blessings to an entire nation for 40 years. And isn't that the kind of leadership we want in our homes, in our churches, in our governments? Would to God we had more spirit-filled women and men leading and guiding us across all boards of the human experience. Would to God we had more spirit-filled women and men as judges in our superior courts and our courts of appeals and supreme courts. And how good is it when you have spirit-filled women and men on the supreme court? How do they think? What kind of decisions do they make to the benefit of society and to the next generation and to our children's children? Greatness and leadership is going to come when the spirit of God comes upon us to be spirit-filled people in the church Now, we know we're born of the Spirit, and we have the Spirit, and our Spirit bears witness with His Spirit that we belong to Him, or His Spirit bears witness with us. 
And what we see in the book of Judges is this first mention like this where the Spirit of God comes upon someone and takes a coward like Gideon and makes him courageous. So it's the Spirit of God upon our life that just gives us like this double portion, this ability to do that or to do this or to face this. We want to ask the Lord to fill us with his Spirit. And when Jesus said to seek, knock, and ask, in Matthew, he says to seek, knock, and ask, and you'll find, you'll receive, and it'll be open unto you. But what's amazing about that is in Luke's record of that, he tells us what to be seeking, knocking, and asking for, right? And it's more of the Holy Spirit. Husbands, your wives love you more when you seek, knocking, asking for more of the Holy Spirit. And the girl you're trying to impress to marry you, she's going to love you a lot more and think you're a lot hotter if you're a spirit-filled man. And ultimately, every man wants to marry a godly woman. Or they should. You know, when Jennifer and I were dating that short time period, I read to her Proverbs 31. She never read the, she didn't even know. So I told her to read the Gospel of John after she got saved. She read the whole book. Like, she's like, what do I do next? Like a day later, I'm like, uh, I don't know. Read it again slower? I don't know. Like, she's straight-A student, super smart, smartest person in the room, so I don't know. But I, I, had her, I, re- I had her read Proverbs 31. I said, what do you think of this? And she goes, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever read. I'm like, so what are you doing for the rest of your life? <laughs> See, a, a smart man knows he needs a godly woman. It's a true story. She's here right now. I can picture her reading Proverbs 31. It was in what was my sister's old room. And she read it and said, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever read. The man who has a godly wife is a blessed man, a spirit-filled wife. The woman who has a spirit-filled man is a blessed woman. Because that's Jesus. That's conviction, it's courage, it's character, and it's Jesus. Man, Othniel is amazing. And he brought blessing to his family, for sure, his marriage, and he brought blessing to the people. Now we get Ehud, the left-handed man. Verse 12. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord, excuse me, and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, let me just say this real quick. The Lord is raising up these adversaries, right? Like the Lord will create agitation for you. When Solomon rebelled against the Lord, God created agitation for him because he loves us and whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he's not going to let the people of covenant Live in darkness and get away with darkness. And thank God for that. So the Lord strengthened Eglon. So here's this Eglon. And I, uh, he's, he's, he's Eglon. What a name. And his description goes with him. Then he gathered to himself people of Ammon and Amalek. Went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palm. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger, it was double-edged and a cubit in length, and fastened under his cloth on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. So he was, he was overweight. This, it's not me, it's, it's the Bible. So, uh, and, and that's a word we're not allowed to say in our family, so just so you know, but it's there in the text. So, and when... He had finished presenting the tribute. He sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were in Gilgal. And he said, hey, hey, I have a secret message for you, O king. 
And he said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he rose from his seat. And then Ehud reached out with his left hand. And I'm a lefty, so I can do this. With his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out. See, I told you those things in Judges that are just so real. It says, entrails come out. Then Ehud went out through the porch, shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look and to the surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, hmm, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed and still had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them and there was their master falling dead on the floor. When Ehud escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone image and escaped to Sirah, and it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. And then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and he did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest 80 years. So here's our second judge, Ehud. And he, this historical record, this is what happened. So again, we talked about if you're 16, and then Othniel does what he does, you're 56 when that 40 years is done. Now there's these bad years, and it goes on for 18 years. So 56, 66 plus 8, 74. I mean, your retirement age got wrecked. Your retirement age just got racked by the evil of the land you live in, out of your control. But still, we talk about this. We mentioned this last week. Evil generations, evil nations are going to do what they're going to do, but God always honors his people who love and obey him and serve him. That's He's always going to honor that. So you always have the chance, like we said last week, to be the faithful judge, Deborah, the faithful judge, Gideon, Ehud. We have that chance. Still, you kind of get locked in on a ride with everybody else for your generation, what's going on on the planet and in your country. I mean, what if you lived in Afghanistan in the last 20 years? It was looking so good, and then you cast your lot here, and then it all went bad. And now it's, they can't even get their electricity on. Like, what are you going to do? You can brag about beating the Soviets and the Americans, but what are you going to do? You can't even turn your electricity on. And you can love Jesus in Afghanistan right now, but you're still affected by these things. And what are you going to do? Well, I know this much. God's going to take care of his people in Afghanistan, in America, and wherever you live and who you are as a church. He always shows himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. But it's another bad sequence. It's a dark time. And here comes Ehud. And he, he does this to Eglon. God allowed Eglon... So really, it's not even about Eglon. It's about who's going to stand up to the evil and do what's right and turn the tide. It, it really is about courage. Because when I look here, when you read about Ehud, think how, like, if you really picture this like a movie scene or something, like, this guy is, like, totally nerves of steel under pressure. Like, everyone's living in fear. But he's still, this guy, he knows the promises of God. He knows what would be right with God. He knows that there's a demonic entity, there's evil behind this. And this is war. This is like the German occupation in the Netherlands, right? Like Rotterdam, they bomb your city, then they occupy your city, like Warsaw. Like this is where you, 
we've never been pressed like this. We already saw tonight there's a generation that didn't know war and God's teaching them war. God forbid we ever really know war, what it looks like. Like Europeans know war, what it looks like. Although they seem to have forgotten, but the previous generation certainly knew what war would look like in Europe. And like the courage, like, can you imagine like the adrenaline? Can you imagine going to this king? Like, hey, hey. And like you got one chance and to execute this game plan. This is in the Bible. This guy had the courage and the nerves to steal to execute this game plan. And in so doing, obviously the Lord met him in it. He found his deliverance when he fled. Can you imagine running from this scene? And you'd have to decide if you're morally right or wrong. And he would have been convinced he was morally right. And then he blows the trumpet and rallies God's people to stand against the evil and stand up for what's right. That's what he did. This is a level of courage I can't even relate to. And it's, a, a, it's an intensity in the human experience I can't relate to either. But we'll just say this. When he did it, what he did, that risk he took, he risked his life. We're going to see that in Deborah's song, chapter 5, next week. When leaders lead in Israel and when men risk their lives, that's what this guy did. He, one thing we know is he risked his life to bring deliverance for God's people in the context of war and military. He risked his life. Sometimes it just takes one woman or one man to stand up to do what's right and risk everything. To be willing to risk everything, your reputation, everything. When you see the people standing up for the unborn, standing up against the gay onslaught and the transgenderism and the attack on the public school system, when you see the men and women who are standing up front to these things for what truth is against these lies, they're like this. They know war. And it takes so much courage to do that. It takes so much courage. It's so commendable to stand up for truth and light in the face of darkness and falsehood and goodness versus evil. You know how hard it is to risk everything to be canceled? We might find out. I don't know. We might know someday. I just know on the darkest day, I'd like to think that I would have the courage to do whatever it takes to do what's right in that moment, however difficult it is. This is probably the least favorable of different options that you would think about options. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, part of the assassination plot in Valkyrie against Hitler. The biggest pacifist ever in the body of Christ in Germany before the war. But it was a lesser of two evils. We cannot allow this evil to go on. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was all in to see Hitler assassinated, to save the German people and to save Europe. You think, who can even know like, where you find that courage? And then he was imprisoned, and then he was executed right before the end of the war. He was hung. But when men and women of character do the best thing they can, as best they know how, and their courage and their faith gives them a basis by which they can blow the trumpet to rally God's people, to lead them, and to get people to follow them for what's right, and to subdue evil and darkness. And again, the context we understand here, our weapons are not carnal but mighty in God through prayer, taking down strongholds. I know you understand my context, but the principle is incredible. This kind of leadership, this kind of courage is just 
it's inspiring. But it's so sobering. I told you Judges is a sobering book. Isn't it sobering to read a story like this? We're reading about an assassination. The details of what it looks like in the room. There's a real world out there, and there's real world events that affect people around us, and there's no hiding it and covering it up. You can't candy coat what's happened to women in Afghanistan, could you? No. It's just, what's real is real. And courage, conviction, and leadership is always in for the kingdom of God, men and women alike. Now this last judge only has one verse, Shamgar, verse 31. After Ehud was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. So if you have one verse in the Bible, at least let it be one that says you did something of significance in combat. Now I'll close with this thought. We often think like, how does someone kill 600 men supernaturally? David, his mighty men, they did things like this. And I used to, like, early on, I used to read, like, about David's mighty men. Go, like, how do you, like, how do you do that? Like, how does that happen? And it's kind of silly, but I'll close with this thought. When the first Lord of the Rings came out in 2000, 2001, and there's a scene where um, Argon is, he's, these orcs are all coming at him up a hill. It's the end of the first movie of the episode. And he draws his battle line, it's a super powerful scene, and these orcs are coming, and he just starts wielding that sword. And the way it was done, how I think and how I see things, I thought, this is what I thought the first time I saw the first Lord of the Rings. That's what it looked like when David cut down the Philistines. That's what it looked like when Samson took him down with the jawbone of a donkey. That's what it looked like. Just somehow, we're not talking, there's no guns here. We're talking hand-to-hand combat, and someone being supernaturally empowered to just be this execution machine. And it's in the Bible. I love how the Bible is so honest. So Shamgar, he brought deliverance. It says he delivered Israel. So supernaturally, he would have killed these men, and he brought deliverance. And by the way, closing thought on this, Shamgar is mentioned in the following chapter. And it tells us about what life was like during Shamgar. So I'll, I'll just uh, read this to you. It says in chapter 5 in the Song of Deborah, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel. So you want to know what possesses a man to go out and kill 600 Philistines supernaturally? when his own people can't even walk down the street. And what do we read about Shamgar? He delivered God's people. It's a common thread. Somebody available, supernaturally empowered, bringing deliverance from evil forces that God could show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him and bringing that deliverance to God's glory. That's what we have so the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, these are them. The need for them, we studied in detail. May God encourage us and strengthen us and build us up. Again, to be for the church of Jesus Christ in 2021, women like Deborah, men like Ehud, who are courageous in the things of the Spirit, who are not afraid to fight the good fight like Paul said at the end of his life, and to do the right things and stand up against evil and be deliverers, for it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, and that we can be deliverers with truth, 
and the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. Amen.